0: To another episode of the Aquatic Mentors podcast. I'm your host Katrina Van Eyck and I have an amazing special for you this week. So we have a two-hour special and it is a bit longer than normal but I'm so lucky that in this episode, I'm interviewing one of Australia's most iconic lifeguards who's been patrolling the New South Wales beaches and protecting swimmers for 30 years. So please extend a big welcome to the podcast for Bruce Hopkins. For those of you that don't know, Bruce Hopkins is more widely known as Hoppo and he is one of the world's most influential and recognised lifeguards. He regularly graces our TV screens with his work on Bondi Rescue where he and his fellow lifeguards share a look into their work protecting and educating locals and tourists at Bondi Beach about water safety. As a respected water sportsman and competitor, Hoppo has won two gold medals at the Australian Surf Lifesaving Titles. And as president of Surf Educators International, he has travelled the world to educate on water safety. Bruce shares his extensive knowledge of water safety with the world through the Float to Survive campaign, encouraging people to learn the skill of floating to help save their life when in trouble in the water. With Bondi Rescue reaching such a wide audience and educating them on the importance of water safety, Bruce saw an opportunity to bring water safety education to the children of Australia and now consults for the children's TV show Kangaroo Beach. To top off all this amazing work, Bruce has started his own podcast called Life's the Beach. In the podcast, Bruce interviews special guests, shares his personal journey and talks about the all-important frank discussions impacting himself his friends, and the lives of his audience. So through today's episode, Bruce shares some insights into his work as well as his thoughts on lifeguarding and swimming in Australia and where he sees swimming and water safety moving to into the future. Please share any hidden gems, and there is a lot of them in Bruce's interview. Share them on our Facebook page, Aquatic Mentors, and you'll find his contact details listed at the end of the show notes. If you want to share your aquatic story, please contact me via my email, at outlook.com. and also check out our website, theaquaticmentors.com.au for our season 1 ebook. And that focuses on the tips and tricks we found out through our guests in the season 1 of the Aquatic Mentors podcast. So without further ado, let's jump in and find out more about Bruce's journey in swimming, lifeguarding and water safety. So Bruce, how did you start your journey in swimming?
1: I suppose I was a pretty young kid, probably three, four years old and mum and dad, obviously we're living at at Bronte Beach there, pretty close to the ocean. And so they said, let's get you into some swimming lessons. And I remember starting at a There was a little uh, backyard pool around Bronte that a guy, um, Al Fockler, used to take. He was quite well known in the, from, uh, he was in Bondi Surf Club and had a a swim school there. And I remember going every Saturday morning, this little swim school. The pool was probably about, probably only about 15 metres long, but as a four year old, felt like about 50 metres. So, yeah. (laughs) And I remember being petrified going. I was always petrified of the water when I was really young. So that was the first introduction to actually trying to swim.
0: Yeah! Wow, what amazing that you've got into swim school and been petrified. And now the career that you have in life-saving, I suppose it would give you an empathy for those that are scared of the water and also for when they have those drowning experiences at Bondi Beach.
1: Yeah, I mean, even uh, as I got a bit older and, you know, I could swim okay, but I was still not 100% with the ocean. You know, Dad used to take me in there and it probably would took me up until... 12 years old where i was getting a bit more confident in the ocean and taking on bigger waves so you know my early years I was, I was quite scared of going out into the ocean and you know now it's funny it's been become a career for me so it's uh strange how things turn around so you never know you can be frightened of something one day and then uh make a career out of it the next <laughs>
0: I like that. (laughs) What a fantastic turnaround. And to be 12, like, well, I suppose we watch Bondi Rescue and look at you and the other lifeguards and go, oh, they've always, you know, lived in the ocean. They've loved the ocean. No stage have they ever been fearful. And, yeah, you just don't know what is actually the past and what you've gone through. Oh,
1: look, I mean, even as we get older and and everyone is the same, we've all got our limits on, uh, you know, different size waves and, and conditions in the ocean. So there's always... That element of fear that, that we all have because you need that fear to stay grounded and, and respect the ocean. If you haven't got that bit of fear there, and then you don't respect the ocean, that's when things can really go wrong.
0: Yeah, very, very true. Yeah. What am I? I'm 36 and I'm only just really getting to be brave enough to go into the ocean and deal with that sort of side of it. So <laughs> you're doing well at 12. <laughs> There's hope for us yet then. <laughs> And then from there, so how did you go from starting to get used to the ocean at 12 and then becoming one of Bondi's most favourite and famous lifeguards?
1: Oh, look, I suppose when I was 12, I was about 12, 13, when I first got my foam surfboards and as kids growing up and, you know, you progress from, uh, there's a rock called the Orphan at Bronte, you sort of started off there and then you progress a little bit further out and, as you got a bit better and... I remember when I was about 13, I, I got a brand new custom-made fiberglass board, and that was sort of the the big thing, you know, as soon as you get a fiberglass board, you're ready to go and take on anything, so that was probably the start of getting out there and, and practicing on the surfboard, and that gave me a lot more confidence. I came through nippers at Bronte, so I was doing a lot of the, the competition there in the nippers, so you're always paddling boards, swimming, and getting used to the ocean through uh, that way, but... I think it was when I could go out on my own and and start practising and and trialling different things on on my uh, new fibreglass board. I think that's when I started getting more confident in the water.
0: Yeah, things took off when you knew you'd gone to that elite fibreglass board and you could cut loose. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Did you find that your swimming pool skills related to the beach swimming or was it totally different?
1: Oh, no, I think the pool swimming definitely helped the ocean swimming. I mean, it's a bit different technique swimming in the pool than swimming in the ocean because you're obviously a bit higher up. Your shoulders are more out of the water and your head's up more looking where you're going. But, yeah, no, definitely uh, the pool swimming helped me get to that point at, at that age.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. I I mean, I, I'm great once you've given me concrete underneath my feet and not too many waves. I'll swim for as long as I can. And then we went to a holiday in Yipoon went out off of Great Keppel Island, you just notice the difference of even slight waves, how hard it can be to swim over them and you just keep getting pushed back. You feel like you're not going that far?
1: Yeah, that's right. You can push it back quite easy. And also people notice it in ocean swims. Obviously, ocean swimmings are quite popular these days. But they say, I felt like I wasn't moving much. But what people don't realise, the currents, even though you're not around where the waves are, you can be out the back doing a course like we have the, the famous Bondi to Bronte swim which you go around the headland there's a lot of currents moving so there's a lot of movement in the water whereas a pool you don't get that movement so if you always swim in a pool it does feel like you're, you're working a lot harder in the ocean.
0: Yeah so how did you go then to get your job as a Bondi lifeguard?
1: When I left school I went into radio and I was working for the Sydney radio station 2GB and and I was doing a lot of the uh, sports stuff there with the football team, the commentary that they had. And that was something that was I wanted to do. And I've always sort of done a bit of radio here and there and throughout my career, but I was very competitive and I had the passion of training and, and wanting to compete. And I did start the Nutri-Grain series back before it went to the Uncle Toby series. And then sort of way back early 90s, that sort of then made me want to do that, which then I had to have, have a job that could fit in the training. And so lifeguard was the next best thing. So I thought, well, I could be a lifeguard, I could train, keep fit, go compete, could have the best of both worlds. But uh, I was only ever going to do that for five years. Here I am now, coming up for thirty years. So, but that was just a job that you know a guy I knew was already working there said you should come and uh, try out as a lifeguard. I think I was around. I was probably about 20 21 22 at that stage because I did about 4 years at the radio station 4 or 5 years and sort of doing a bit of that presenting and, and journalism but the the passion for the the competition sort of overrid that so and that's why I went to being a lifeguard
0: yeah and I suppose that's why you're so great in front of the camera for Bondi Rescue you've already had that media training and that knowledge and what an ultimate job to be able to train as well I mean every time you do a risk, you're training for those triathlon series
1: yeah yeah it's a, it's something that you know you always got to keep fit and you get time to train at work as well and you're training before work and so there's plenty of time to you know back in the day to put the work in and and also the, the only downside on doing that it, it does get quite tough they're long days plus the sun all day too so that does wear you out and if you're training hard as well. So that's something that uh, you have to sort of be aware of and, and have enough sort of breaks in and out of the sun to, to get through the day.
0: Yeah, and that's something I look at with pool lifeguards. Then, because I'm seasonal, so I work in an outdoor pool, I look at the lifeguards and I think, wow, imagine standing on the outside for 40 degrees, you know, for however long the pool's open, and that's not even as long as what the beach is open. And then like you said, training on top. Do you ever find it hard that in that situation you're working where you're training as well? So when you're training, it's it's not really a break or a, a change?
1: Oh yeah, just like that. I mean, days off you go elsewhere and somewhere else, you're not around where you work, and so you try and train away from your workplace, but it can become a bit mundane. It's the same sort of thing over and over. It's your workplace plus your your training there. So you've got to sort of keep yourself stimulated and but I think with the competition it it's makes it easier if you've got something you're training for it's a bit harder I find it very hard to train when I haven't got something I'm going to coming up that I'm competing in that makes it a lot harder just to go out there and and do it for the sake of doing it it's something that um can become a bit a bit hard
0: yeah that's right you've got to have a purpose to go and I suppose also you know, one thing I always hear on the Bondi rescue episodes when I'm researching is that there is no same day, nothing's the same. So I suppose for you going out and doing a rescue, each one's different. And so that, you know, I think, brings a flair to it and changes it up a bit for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, every rescue is different. Uh, you know, you can have a, a basic rescue where yeah, don't even get your hair wet. You could get other ones where we've got to put ourselves in a position that we wouldn't put ourselves in normally because generally... Someone that like gets themselves in trouble or in the worst possible position you could be in in the ocean. So, you know, we've got to go into that that area outside, you know, our normal, and also put a person on the board and get them back in that that have no idea at all. So that the difficulty there really goes up a hundred percent, and that's the skill that we need, and that's the skill by getting out and training, and not only the fitness, but there's a skill level as well handling the rescue boards, handling the the jet ski, just in those critical situations.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how much there is, and I think they do highlight. A, I, that's the other thing I love Monday Rescue so much is because they do it as an educational program, as well as an entertainment side. They do touch on a lot of the you know rescues and the technical stuff that you have to do, and the the actual physical output you have to do. And yeah, you know, I was watching the episode last night. You know, saying things of the you know weight of people on the boards and how you have to then get them in i think god if i ever drowned at bondi i think i'd just say leave me there don't bother your bucks." but yeah like all that sort of comes into it you don't factor in that much when you are out there swimming and you think you're okay and then suddenly there's that tipping point where you're not you just think oh they'll come save me you don't realize what they've had to do to get there
1: yeah that's right so you know we're obviously set up like a the patrolling strategy is all in place and I mean, the the people watching on TV, it it, it looks so easy when we're doing it. And, you know, most of the the guys are very, very talented in, in what they do. And, you know, it's no different when you sit and watch someone, obviously the Olympics recently, you watch them swim in the pool and they make it look so easy. And the times they're doing is absolutely ridiculous. You know, if you swim alongside of them, they'd pull away that quick. But when they're all swimming together, you think, geez, it can't be that hard.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we could all get in and do that. (laughs) That was one thing, actually. I keep referring back to the Bondi Rescue, but you said in the episode yesterday that about Ian Thorpe, if he's swimming, uh, I can't exactly remember, I'm not great on maths, but the equation, but if he's swimming something like two seconds, uh, a couple of metres every two seconds, where a current is a couple of metres every three seconds, like him being an elite swimmer would only just be able to keep up with it or outrun it. And the average Joe has no way of doing it.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, we worked out that the, the pace they swim in the pool, if he swam straight back into the into a rip and if it was, it was moving at that speed, he would probably just swim in the one spot, wouldn't get past that speed. Obviously, he's a world record holder, probably the fittest you can get it at his peak. And then you've got, you know, your average person that doesn't really go to the beach and then suddenly they're in this situation. And, and that's why we've worked out and, and a lot of the stuff that I've been doing is basically if you float and go with the flow of the water, 90% of the time will pull you across to where the waves are breaking or where the sandbank is and you can stand up. So we've found now over all these years that you're better off not trying to swim. The people we tell to swim, generally we are got to go rescue them. The first thing you want to do when you tell someone to swim is they come back the exact same way they went out. Yeah. And generally that's the way the rip's pulling. So that's the, the difference in impossible for someone to swim against a rip unless you're good enough to swim faster than the it's pulling back out you know, in, in metres.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's it. And that's what I mean about the educational side. It's amazing. Like I present for Aster in regards to swim teacher courses and I'll say to them, watch Bondo Rescue when we have to touch on the lifeguarding side and the drowning side. And I always say, you know, watch Bondo Rescue. It shows you exactly how someone starts drowning, what they do. And am I right in saying there's a tipping point where people, you know, they're in trouble, they maybe notice it. And then there's a tipping point where they actually get real in trouble and that's when they need that help.
1: Yeah. There's a few things on, you know, people at different levels. Some go in like knee depth, waist depth, where the rip is. And they think they're going to be safe because they're standing. But you only need to take that one or two more steps further out and it goes a bit deeper. And once that pool starts grabbing you, you're sort of fighting against it. And then suddenly you lose your footing and then you're then you, off you go. Other people too, though, that, you know, there's plenty of people say to me, oh yeah, I can swim, I can swim, you know, whether they swim in a pool or an ocean or wherever they swim. But you've got to work out and realise that most people might only be able to swim 50 metres or 100 metres. So whatever amount of strokes they take to do this, say we'll use a 50 metre as an example. So technically they can swim, but put them in in a a rip situation and they decide to swim back into the rip. Well, once they've done that amount of strokes, which is equivalent to their 50 metre swim, and they're not standing or back to shore... The first thing they're going to do then is just go into this mass panic because they don't think they're going to. Then once you go into that panic stage, that's when you think you're not going to survive. And that's where you see people just make massive mistakes. And I usually use the example, if you panic, whether you're driving a car or panic in any situation you're in, there's a very good chance you'll make a mistake.
0: Wow. That's, I've never thought of it that way. And that's it. You're limited as a pool swimmer of, yeah, you are 50 strokes and then you do your turn and you're back and yeah, you get to that point in the water, you'd hit that point And then it would just be, what do I do next? And if they're unsure, they're going to panic.
1: Yeah. yeah. And that's what I, I use this example, even myself. So if I'm in a rib and I swim for hours and hours and hours, eventually there'll be a point where I can't swim any longer. Yeah. You know, and that's when you're going to go under, whereas the theory of, just relax, go with the flow. Because there's this theory that you end up out to sea. Like rips don't take you out to sea. The only time they go further out past the breaking waves is when the swell is quite big and there's a lot of water coming in and then that water's got to go back out. So most people that drown, it's either flat water or the ocean's probably two foot, three foot at the max when people are drowning. So in those situations, at least 90% of the time, if you go with the flow of the water, you'll rescue yourself.
0: Wow, I've never yeah. realised that.
1: And the people, obviously, when it's a massive surf and and the water and rips are pulling further out, but those people aren't in the water at that stage. You've got basically just experience. You know, no one, not many people are drowning over all the years in big surf. It's all three foot and under. It's very small because that's the they're still capable of going in at, at that's, that level. A lot of people think that it's big surf that drowns people, but it's not.
0: Mm, yeah, and you can just see that on the show, how calm it is and, you know, when you get those big times when you've got to rescue a lot of people over a short time and you look out and you say, what happened there? It's quite calm, it's, you know, not scary, but that's when they hit.
1: We like bigger the bigger surf because then... It breaks and keeps people in. So the non swimmer or the average swimmer is not even going to get past the, the shore. Whereas when it's smaller, our worst days for rescues is, is that two foot, around two foot, three foot days is where we do our most of our rescues.
0: Yeah. And I never really comprehended the fact of how many people are on the beach at one time. When yeah. you think on those popular days, Australia Day, all those sort of ones, there could be thousands of people on the beach.
1: Yeah, we, well, those big days will get easy, probably 30,000, 40,000 people on the beach. So there's a lot of people. We run with a minimum of six lifeguards. Then we have you know, maybe a couple of others. But our patrolling strategy in place allows us to deal with that. So it works out. If you break it down, I don't know what the mass is. It's probably about 7,000 people per lifeguard. And that was one thing I... I recognise with the pools, they had so many people as lifeguards at the pool, it's the amount of people who were coming into the pool. The theory that people have, more lifeguards you have, the less chance of someone drowning, right? Whereas realistically, it's the least amount of lifeguards is better for us because, and, and I think a pool would be the same, because the more you have, the more chance they're talking to each other. They're switching off because they know someone you're watching or I'm watching or you think someone else is watching, whereas the potentially nobody is watching. So use us as an example in the lifeguard tower. That's the main point of directing everyone around the beach. If you sit back and watch when there's only one person in that tower, they're switched on 100% of the time. When the changeovers happen, everyone comes back in when they're starting to do lunch breaks and other guys are going out on the beach, other guys are coming back for rest, and there's three or four people in the tower, the chatting starts, the other things happen, what happened yesterday, You know, talking about where the, the, the night before, which is a natural thing that we all do, but there's a fine line in when to do that and when not to do that. The younger guys can really get caught up in, in chatting or doing something else, thinking someone else is watching, but really out of the three or four, there might not be anybody watching the beach. Yeah. So the theory I've got is you need good lifeguards. So four, five lifeguards that are really, really good and switched on is better than having 10 lifeguards that are not switched on, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that's something I see here, like in our local pool, being middle of country Victoria, you know, we may have at the most... On a normal day without a school program, about 20 people go through, if that, with two, sometimes three lifeguards. And, you know, they could be going through where they have one or two people in the pool at a time. So they are off chatting, which, like you said, is natural human behaviour. And you're getting young kids lifeguarding. And I always look around and go, no, you should be watching, even if you've got that little amount of people. And then they might go into Melbourne for university. And they hit these big pools and they go lifeguard at MSAC, the big one in Melbourne, and, you know, you can have 500 people in a half hour.
2: Yeah,
0: It's nothing like what you guys go through, but they don't understand the total difference and they get there and they think, man, this, I actually have to work now. I have to be on.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. And, and the consulting I've done to pool lifeguards as well, it, there's not a lot of difference between so there's an ocean lifeguard and a pool lifeguard because at the end of the day, the main Priorities is we're watching the water to make sure no one drowns. Resuscitation, that's the same across the board. Your rescue techniques, your patrolling strategies are very similar. The only difference between the ocean and the pool lifeguard is that we get waves, which makes it a bit different of a skill set. But the basics of a lifeguard is the same no matter where you're working.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. You've got the same outcome that you've got to do. It's just, yeah, the environment might be slightly different. Yeah. yeah, one question I do have, and it was something when I originally started swim teaching, I heard that when you need to be rescued, put your arm up and wave, and then it got changed to close your fist and wave because they thought the lifeguards would be thinking that you're waving at someone else. What would be the best way? Is it just either way? If you can get your arm up, because a lot of the time you can't, if you can get up your arm, wave around and yell for help. Or is there a specific way, or do you just see it in their eyes that they need that help?
1: Oh, look, look my level now of all the years of, of experience that I can tell the way someone is entering the water or walking in the water that I'm going to have to watch them more so than someone else. And just the way they're, they're hesitant or they're, the way they dive in or even the way that, you know, especially board riders, the way they're carrying the surfboard, there's little things that give away different levels that, that people are at. So with the, yeah, definitely the the waving's a tough one because we have a lot of the public, especially there's a Bondi to Bronte walk and it goes up high on a cliff and they see people waving and then they run down saying there's someone in trouble, but they might just be waving to their friend in the water or their their friend on the beach or, you know, so that can be distracting on whether they're waving for help or or waving to someone else. The other thing is too, a person that's at the stage where they're going to drown they're not going to be physically be able to even put their arm up in the air. So that's the other thing too is that's where they say that the silent drowning. So we've found that the silent drowning is because you've got that much panic and you've got to remember when you're about to drown, you've probably used up all your energy mm-hmm. and the lactic acid build up in your arms. It'd be like putting 50 kilo weights on your arms. Wow. So when you, and, and you imagine doing, um, like running sprints and then trying to talk and yell out after you've done those running sprints, it's exactly the same. So what happens is their arms physically can't keep them afloat. And people say, why don't they yell out? Well, they're that exhausted. They physically probably open their mouth, but nothing comes out because they just can't get a breath to, to even yell out. So that's what they call, that's basically a silent drowning because you don't even hear them go under. They just suddenly just go under. So that's a problem with that. It's pretty much really, I mean, if you can put your arm up in the air, you just put it straight up in the air and don't wave it because then at least you know that that's a problem. It's more so though, if, it's before you get to that point, you should be, you know, if as a board rider in the water or someone close by is to get their attention and hopefully they can hold you for a bit of time. That's why what we're trying to train now, and we'll touch on it probably later, is what I'm doing with the floating. I'll leave that till later, but this will help on what we're talking about now as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. I, it's something that is totally foreign. And, you know, when they are trying to, when they are drowning, they're trying to get a breath. And like you said, they they in that shock. Nothing comes out. You know, when those scary movies come on, someone gets scared and they can freeze. And sometimes they just don't have the the chance to yell. So And I always say to the swim teachers that I'm presenting to, I mean, we need to teach them these skills to put the hand up. We need to tell them to yell. We need to tell them to float on their back. So when they get into this situation, it just becomes sort of innate response or automatic that that's what the body does straight away. And also that they, I I, I use the analogy and I could be wrong that, you know, you have that tipping point that you realize we need to get them to realize a lot sooner that they are out of their depth and in trouble and to contact for help even if they think they can get back, always sort of ask for help anyway, because you guys would like to go out and pull them back and make it easier for them to then, instead of having to go out and trying to find them underwater when they've drowned.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's it's identifying, you know, most people get one, they get embarrassed because they they need help. And and so they leave it that bit longer and they don't identify that some people don't identify um, that that they are potentially in trouble because we go out and grab people we know that they're not going to get back. So we go, we're on our way and, and we get them beforehand. And some people say, oh, yeah, I'm not too bad, i not too bad. And sometimes some refuse to, to get on the rescue board, but you sit there and they say, oh, can I say? Oh, so you just tell them, okay, well, off you go and try and get in. They last another 20 seconds and then they go, oh, yeah, you no, know, I need help. But, see, if we weren't there, though, that person would have kept going to the point where they go beyond that point of staying calm and once that panic sets in, that, it's all over once the panic sets in. And I, I've got a good example. I went out for – there was a husband and wife uh, down backpackers once that were were really in trouble. And and we call it the karate chop. They sort of – you know, they're, they're chopping away. They're just all – they're not – there's no momentum forward or, or anything. It's just they're just going up and down the one spot, using up all their energy and not even moving. When I got out to them, I couldn't find that the wife, she disappeared, and I thought she's gone under. But when I got closer, this is where the fear and panic and and survival mode comes in for a human being, is he had hold of her by her shoulders, holding her under to keep himself afloat. And he nearly drowned by that because he was in that much of a panic that he was doing anything possible to keep his head above water. So, you know, I'll tell you what though, when... When she got to the shore, she wasn't real happy about it.
0: <laughs> I was just about to suck and imagine the car ride home.
1: <laughs> then I thought, later on, when I thought about it, I thought well, maybe that was his, his excuse to actually get rid of her. You know, I don't know whether, but but I can see in his eyes though that that he actually had no idea what he was doing at the at the time, and he couldn't believe it when we were back at shore as well, and he just couldn't he couldn't remember that that's what he was doing. But that's what panic does. And if anyone listening that has gone into a panic state half the time you don't remember what, what it was, how it happened. And, you know, it, it just happens so quick. And it's just trying to get that mental or more changing people's behavior to understand when they're getting to that point before, as you said, before they get there.
0: Yeah. Yep. Did you get his phone number and make sure he was still alive the next morning after the <laughs> fight when they got
1: home? I don't know. I, don't, I didn't get the number, but so I don't know how he, uh, I'll tell you what, there would have been a, would have been a tough night for him and I, I don't know how he's going to get himself out of it. uh,
0: It'll be the one that the story they bring up all the time when he starts arguing, well, you did try and drown me.
1: He's in a no-win situation.
0: Yeah, that's right. He's stuffed. I mean, I've had it before in our pool environment. I had a group of five kids. Three of them swam off and they were fine. I was keeping an eye on those. There's two brothers sort of just a bit behind me. I looked at them. They were fine. They had kickboards. Then I looked back at the other three, turned around, and it is like they always say, literally two seconds. And one brother had panicked and jumped on top of another brother, the, his other brother, and was pushing him down to try and get to high ground. He wasn't purposely trying to drown his brother, but he'd gone to grab onto the kickboard to get extra stability and then even more panicked and then just climbed on top of his brother.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's just the pan- That's just the human survival mode you know it's, it's you do anything when you get to that point and you're not thinking about whoever else is around it's just you are grab and hold of anything and that's why when we go out to rescue people we always take some sort of equipment because you know if you don't take equipment and like the pool if you jump in a pool with with no equipment the first thing they're going to do is they'll grab hold of you that tight that they will able to drag you under as well
0: yep yeah yeah that's it you need that distance away from each other yeah So what's been the biggest lesson you've learned over your journey in swimming and lifeguarding, or is there many?
1: I think the main lesson is, well, one, not not to panic, I suppose. And and we all do at some stage. There's always, you know, we all get the point, even myself, in even the early days with swimming, as I said, there's a lot of panic. I had that much anxiety heading down to the pool or even to nippers because I knew we were going to the ocean and, you know, we come around the corner and there might be a big swell on that day and the anxiety would start because I know I'd had to go out into those conditions and I wasn't confident enough in myself and to be able to do that. And, you know, but it was from getting pushed to, to keep doing it that, that you do get better. So everyone's going to get anxiety in whatever they do, you know, whether it's pool swimming, getting in the pool so kids that get upset. So I probably learned to how I was to deal and understand when other people in those situations, I think some people that can be naturally good at swimming can't understand why other people can't just do it. Mm. So I think that's given me a bit of an understanding lifeguarding. Well, that the main thing there is not the paint. It's more so stay calm. And the more calm you can be, the the better you can think, the better uh, your decision making is a lot better. So I think that's one thing that I've learned over all the years of, of being a lifeguard. And I've done so many resuscitations, you know, where people have got no breathing, no pulse. They're basically dead in front of you. I noticed, and I try and get it out of a lot of the guys that we work with over the years, they rush everything. As, as some people just rush. Just because someone's dead in front of you, rushing is not going to make any any better. So you need to take your time. And and what I try and explain, and I've only learnt this from experiencing it and doing it, is you've got a lot more time than what you think. You think you've only got two seconds, but really you've got 15, 20 seconds. You've got more time. And if you're doing good compressions and all that, you're going to keep the person going for a, a good period of time. But if you're doing bad compressions, well, by rushing it's not going to help the person anyway. So I suppose that's the main thing I've learned is just to stay calm. You've got more time to deal with critical emergency situations, but I don't know whether it's something that's built in with me from birth or whether I've picked it up throughout my life, but whenever there's a critical situation or there's a mass rescue or major things going on, everything tends to slow down like it's in slow motion. Oh, wow. So I might have, 20 seconds, but it feels like five minutes. Yeah. I, I haven't trained myself to do that. Often when you speak to athletes, they say that their best race felt like it was slow motion. Yeah. So I think that probably works in anyone's life, in in whatever you're doing, in the workplace, in, in anything. I think your best moments probably feel like it's in slow motion. Cricketers say the same thing. They say, when they're in form, it, it's like a basketball coming at them, you know, instead of a cricket ball. But when they're out of form, it's like a a, a golf ball. Yeah. They they can't see it. So you know, maybe it's you know trying to train the brain to be able to do. I wish I could do that in every day instead of just when it happens major. But you know that that that's the way. But I can't explain how I got it, whether it was built in or whether I've just gained that ex- from experience of being a lifeguard.
0: Yeah, and I think also a lot of the time that stuff comes up when you are nervous and when you do have anxiety, because if you're willing to deal with it, you see it from a different angle. You take that time, you notice what's going on. And I think you have that bigger perception of what's going on in the world. Man, you really need to learn how to train that to other people because I'd be one of your first clients to learn how to get time to slow down.
1: Yeah, look, I, yeah, I, I, um, I mean, it, it does, I, I do a lot of corporate talks. I talk about this sort of stuff that I'm talking about now, but but really with the water safety stuff where we're going with it, I think we can really change. And, well, the the ultimate aim is to minimise drowning, you know, in Australia and also around the world. It's, it's something that's preventable, drowning, and also it's just changing the behaviour of people is the big one. If we can change the behaviour of people... I think you'll notice a a lot less drowning.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, definitely. And I think one, as I keep referring back to the Bondi episodes, but the one last night came on when the Mongolian doctor drowned. Yeah. And really the, the support I saw that you guys give each other, and it's not, I suppose it's not tick the box support. It's not, okay, we have to go have a chat. We have to have this debrief. We have to do this yeah you know you have to talk about it with everyone. It is actually connection that you have. Is it just a connection that you guys have developed, and as soon as a new lifeguard comes in, you bring them into that fold, or is it something that you've put in place, or is it a mixture of all of
1: it? Uh, it's probably things we've put in place, and, and I suppose what we've the older guys have learnt and mistakes we've made when there's been a major incident. There have been, and I suppose it resonates with me because a couple of guys that started probably the, in the 80s as a lifeguard, and I worked with them in the 90s, that actually after that have committed suicide. For Now, I don't know whether it was all to do with what we deal with because we deal with a lot of body retrievals, a lot of, you know, death from, from um, suicide because we obviously, we cover, I don't know if you know, it's renowned, the Gap up near um, the Sydney Heads, So we cover that area there. So there's a lot of suicides and a a lot of things like that that we deal with. Plus also we've found when you have a major resuscitation and even if you get the person back Mm -hmm. and the person survives and goes on to live a longer life, it can still mentally affect the person that was trying to revive them. People think it's only when someone dies that it's going to affect someone. But we've found it affects them even when people it's a successful rescue yeah. and eventually it just keeps wearing you down wearing you down and we used to always just go once something major happened you'd go and it'd be compulsory we all got together and then we'd bring down a counselor that would sit in and, and listen to what everyone's saying and you was hoping that they'd pick up on certain questions that someone's not a hundred percent because more and more I mean it's, it's getting a lot better now and I'll touch on where we're at now but Back then was like the male ego is like you basically just got a slap on the on your back. Well done, and if you if you seemed a bit upset or a bit down about things, it was always I oh, might just toughen up and get on with it. We'll be you'll be right, you know that that type that era was was that. So
2: yeah.
1: I always came through that okay. Um, whether I could have my own mechanisms to deal with with death or, or deal with all that, but I found. One thing is when you someone does die, the family comes down and wants to be around the people that were last with the loved one. So what happens is, as, as, this is where I think a lot of the, the guys and girls struggle with, is you become a part of the grieving process
0: yeah.
1: of the death with the family that you don't even know. Yeah. And you get caught up in all that. So you can really if you don't distance yourself from it, you can really get yourself caught up and, and, and start playing your mind later on. But I think that my dad passed away about seven years ago. But when that happened, even though you're upset and, and everything is, as everyone does get with their family, but I think I, I handled it way better than I thought I would. But I put that back to multiple times of experiencing mourning and death with other families that I didn't even know. So yeah. I understood it. And I think that helped. And I think it's like anything and it's like rips. You need to experience it. I can sit here and tell you about how you should and shouldn't do in a rip, but then go and put you in a rip. What I've told you will go straight out the window. Well,
2: yeah. Yep.
1: So you need to experience it and go, okay, yeah, now I get it. With what we do now is we train, I always thought we train physically our body to be able to go out and do a rescue but no one ever trains their mind to deal with what you're dealing with. So we've got this Dr. David said comes now and he now trains us like we train physically, but it's our mind. So he trains our mind to say, right, uh, everyone that's working here at Bondi, there is a very good chance that you'll deal with a dead body. So what he does, he trains us now to be able to deal with that. So when it happens, you're already prepared rather than not doing anything, suddenly happens. And then, as he says, is, well, how do you prepare after it's happened?
0: Yeah. You
1: know, people just suddenly go, well, it's happened. So you're, you're affected immediately on, on whatever, whether it's a loved one or someone else from work or whoever it is. And then someone, then they go to counselling. Well, the damage is already done. Yeah. So that's what the way we're working now is is preparing ourselves for that. And he's done a lot with the Afghan soldiers and everyone that's come back from the, from the, um, from the Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and that's the way they're training. Now the, the soldiers before they go into war, it's like, well, your mate stand next to you. Now there's a good chance you'll stand there and his head will be blown off with a bullet.
2: Yeah.
1: Right? So that, that's the way that the mind is working. And I've found with these guys, it's really working way better than what we did years ago.
0: It is. And I mean, it's preparation. It's like we're saying with the athletes these days. I mean, you can deal with the mental health issues after they've happened, or you can prepare them to deal with it first and empower them and allow them to make a stronger decision and even do better in the situation beforehand because they're prepared, they know how to deal with it. We've got that opportunity now. You've been amazing bringing in the doctor and working through that way we can do that and we should because it's better to make them prepared for the event than to have to deal with the aftermath later on as well.
1: Yeah, and I I find it's working with just everyone in their normal life. I mean, every single person, doesn't matter whether you're, you know, whatever job you're doing or or whether you're famous or whether, you know, you're a multimillionaire, a billionaire, we're all going to have down and dark times in our life and you need to have those So then when you have the good times, that makes it all worthwhile. So it's, and everyone's going to have ups and downs. I think people see other people in their lives, how they're going and this, you know, mine's rock bottom and, but everyone's going to go through it at some point.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yep. And it's how do you deal with it? And then how do you move on as well? How do you stop yourself just wallowing in your self-pity? I think that's the big one. And that's what I find now. Yeah. So what's been the highlight or has there been a few highlights in your swimming and lifeguarding journey?
1: I suppose the highlights, highlights would definitely be that with the lifeguards is when you bring someone back to life, I think that's something that it's hard to explain in words, the, the feeling and the adrenaline rush in, in doing that, that that's probably the biggest. I mean, just your rescues as well, you know, that, if I hadn't gone and got that person and brought them in, there's a good chance they wouldn't have survived if no one was around. So that, that's all been pretty good. I mean, competition wise, I'm proud of things I've done in competition over the years. And I suppose that for swimming, I suppose the best races I ever did in swimming is the Rottnest swim over in Perth. We did that in a team. I probably did about 10 times in a, in a team. It's like your channel 10 was sponsor of um, the, the Rottnest swim and, because we're a part of 10, they take us over a team and we do that every, every year, which was, was quite good. So cool. on the swimming side of things, I think that's one of the greatest events that I've ever been a part of in swimming. I think it's uh, amazing to swim across from Cottesloe to Rottnest Island.
0: What an amazing achievement. And, yeah, to be able to have that opportunity to do it a number of times and you'd be really in your element in that sort of environment and that race.
1: Yeah, I mean, we tend to go went better the, the choppier it was. I mean, you don't really get waves over there because it's, you know, you're in the, the big bay, you know, off the shore, you get a little bit of a wave. But, yeah, a lot of the times it was quite smooth and, and flat, a bit like a, a pool swimming. But sometimes a couple of years when the doctor came up early and it was uh, it was quite windy and choppy, it really suited us swimming in the in the chop and it knocked about a lot of people that weren't used to doing that. So we always wanted the the wind, everyone else wanted it dead flat. So
0: <laughs> unfair advantage, I think.
1: Yeah, we did get a couple of times with out of the ten. I think it was probably about two times that we had to, that the conditions were quite quite choppy and, and a bit tougher than normal.
0: Yeah, you knew you had the race in the bag on those ones.
1: Yeah, I think we won those ones. We didn't do a lot of training for it, but I suppose with the training and, and, and just being in the ocean at, at work all the time. I think the ten years, I think we we always got either a first, second or third. So Oh, in wow. the so it was it was a good time and yeah I mean that's probably the standout in my swimming career apart from that I I did a bit of you know obviously the Ironman racing and things but I sort of swayed more towards the ski paddling and the board paddling than than actually the the swimming so that was something that you know I enjoyed doing
0: yeah that's amazing so was there anyone that played a big role in your journey would it be a mentor or a friend or family member
1: oh look, Early days, I suppose, Dad played a bit of a part because he'd take me down to the nippers. He'd obviously be the water safety person as well, and he'd go out there and he was pretty much. He grew up in the country, so he had that real tough country sort of mentality. Is is you just do it? You don't not do it. You don't show weakness. You just get out and you know and and push yourself. Yeah. Uh, so I suppose in hindsight, looking back, even though I was terrified at the time, it's probably helped me. There's probably a fine line though between how hard you push a kid and uh, and not. And obviously you would have seen it in the in the pools. I've seen it here in Sydney, how some parents push their kids that hard at young that they do have the talent, but they just burn them out by the time they're you know 13, 14, and yeah. and the kid doesn't want to be involved. So potentially I suppose uh, looking back, that could have happened with me, I suppose. I could have just walked away from it because there's too much pressure and and, and pushing. Um, I think what it is, though, and that's where I suppose where a good coach comes in. I think a coach can really mentor the the child and groom them into being, uh, you know, not overdone. And then that person deals with the parents, you know, to separate the the child or the parent. And I think that sort of helped me with dad, I suppose, because mum was the opposite. She just said, no, don't, you don't. If he doesn't want to go in today, don't. Let, he doesn't have to go in. But dad made me go in, so. You know, if I went mum's way, maybe I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. So, you know, you don't know. So I still believe everyone needs to be pushed to a certain extent, but there is a fine line because anyone listening out there has probably known or been in the same position where, you know, you you can be pushed too hard by parents. Uh, And I think sometimes I feel, especially around Bondi, it's the parent wanted to be that in their day, didn't make it. So they're trying to live through the child to get to that point. So, yeah. you know, there's a, a a fine line, and I suppose then you know, I've had coaches though over the years that have helped with that and mentored, and helped me through those periods where I understood how to keep going on the path I was going instead of just giving up and 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 not wanting to do it anymore.
0: Yeah. I think that's fantastic that you've had that opportunity. You understand that that's what coaches are and you pointed out because it is, you know, that bridging gap between sometimes you are between parents and kids. You're translating to the kid what the parent actually means. I mean, they they don't do it because they want to push the child to oblivion. It's, they actually care for them and they want them to do well. It's unusual that a parent's doing it when they don't care. Yep. And, and it's about translating that. To the the swimmer or to the athlete and then translating what the athlete wants back to the parent in a way that they can understand as well. I think yeah. we are that bridging gap, and we are that difference that we can make such a difference in a kid's life by being just the translator between the two.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think, and I think a lot of people think that a coach is basically setting the program for the you know, to be in the pool and swim the laps and all that. That's a part of it, but the big part of it is is the mentoring and. You know, as you said, there's a lot of life coaches now and every Olympian would have someone working on their their mental state to get them ready to compete as well as the physical side. So, you know, you've got to weigh up the, I suppose, to me, a a great coach can see where the person needs to go but also can see the distractions outside of that that will affect the person in in what they're going to do.
0: Mm. Yeah. Very true. Yep. And can take the sort of the whole encompassing story and light into it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: there's there's a lot of, I mean, I don't know if you know, but rugby league, there's Wayne Bennett, the coach for, for, he's with South at the moment, but he's more about mentoring the the younger kids off the field. And that gets the best out of them when they're playing on the field. Yeah. He's always been that way. And, and, You know, he's in his 70s now, so he's had a lot of experience. And I think that's where I can see, and and now I'm older too, I can see how I probably deal with the team at the beach as lifeguards. I deal different than probably what I did 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. And I can see the mistakes that I made back then. So it does help. You need to learn from the mistakes because at the end of the day, people have got to realise, and I, I see kids coming through in, in soccer and football and, and whatever sport they're playing and everyone seems, they don't have a winner or a loser, everyone seems to win, you know, and I think the problem, and, and this is just my opinion, the problem though is, is at some stage all of us are going to fail at something in our life and then kids, if you haven't learnt that failure as you come through, you can't understand why you failed, because I've always won.
2: Mm.
1: So that's the difference, I think, when you come through as an older, uh, you know, getting into your late teens, into adulthood. That's something that people need to understand that failure is a part of life. We're all going to fail. When you fail, how do you work on that to take a positive out of that to then make it something that's going to be successful?
0: Yeah, and that's right. And I suppose as a lifeguard, and especially a beach lifeguard, that lesson hits you in the face every time you get a drowning, or every time you know you have to rescue someone. Yeah, and I suppose drowning mostly in regards to you always sit back and think, What could I have done better, or did I fail, and things like that? Where you know you haven't, it's the circumstances, but you start questioning that. And if you take the chance to learn from it and do better next time, it makes a difference.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I mean, the bonus with us, with the you know, when they are filming. I mean, they only film between mid, uh, mid-December mid to the end of February and they do it seven days a week in that at that period. And that's the only time that they film. But what we capture in that time, we can get that raw footage and sit down and go through the raw footage and oh, see good. what you've done wrong and what you've done right and, you know, what we can improve in and things like that. So that, that's a real bonus for us as well to have the, the footage because when you're doing things, you don't know what the other person's doing and then you forget what you've done and in those high intense situations. So to look back at it and watch what you've done, it's very, very um, handy to move forward and improve in what you're doing. I mean, I love putting people in there outside their comfort zone. And I think unless you go out of your comfort zone, you're never ever going to improve or get any better.
0: Mm. That's right. So is that the reason why... Every time, like nearly every week, it's Christmas or New Year at Bondi on the TV because <laughs> <it's laughs> that's when they film.
2: Yeah, that,
1: I mean, they just film in, in that so, well, so-called so, the, the, probably the busiest time of the, the year. It's so basically just peak summer and then they just capture whatever they capture there and then that's it. So outside of that, there's plenty of other stuff happens that they never makes TV because they're not there. They've obviously got a budget. They're you know they're down there. They're running probably 24 camera angles a day, you know, like with the GoPros yeah. and um, there's GoPros on every rescue board, the bike, uh, the beach bikes, the towers, the jet skis. You've got a cameraman always in the tower, the main tower. And then you've got a crew on the beach, a sound guy, a producer, and a cameraman that roams around as well to capture stuff on the beach. So it's, it's a pretty big production. You know, they, they run probably 10 crew per day and it's seven days a week for that you know, 10, nearly 12 weeks.
0: Wow. It is a big production then. You just don't realise how much. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, I mean, when you were rescuing before you had the GoPros on the board and things like that, is there a difference now or is it a hindrance having them or is it better having them?
1: No, it's just exactly the same. I mean, at the end of the day, you forget the cameras are there, to be honest. You're doing what you do, and They're just in a little box in a fin box on the front of the board so you don't even notice really that they're there so and obviously over the years they've got smaller and the technology's got better and yeah you don't even know that they're there so it hasn't made any difference in the way we rescue
0: yeah oh that's good I always feel for the uh the rescued person on the front of the lifeguard just having that camera in their face but I suppose at that circumstance it doesn't matter
1: (laughs) yeah by that stage they uh all they want to do is put their feet on the sand they don't know yeah. I don't know what's happening between the between getting rescued and getting back to the
2: beach
0: yeah that's right and I always think afterwards like imagine watching an episode and going oh crap that's me on that board <laughs> <laughs> they do
1: though, just so people do know is is everyone that they do put on tv they've got to get permission from the person to go on tv so it's, it's not matter you get rescued and then you're on tv so they've got to do that uh, permission, especially especially when it's a critical situation, the family need to agree for that to go to air. So nothing goes there unless the person's given permission.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Not so much of a shock then.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so what advice would you give to a new lifeguard or even a swim teacher and coach wanting to come out into the industry?
1: I think the, the main thing probably works for both is know your industry and, and learn what it's about and, and know the basics before you probably go into it. And then obviously when you start, you can then learn and you'll get mentored into uh, from there. But I, I think it's always been open for mistakes. I think, you know, that don't, I think people try and hide things. So, so basically when you go in everyone, so say a lifeguard, Everyone knows what their strength is and what their weakness is. And if you go in and just, you know, your weakness, you never work on your weakness and you only work on the strengths. Lifeguards, we set a bar that you need to be over. Now, I always use the example that your weakness is over that bar we set, otherwise you wouldn't be on as a lifeguard. But if you don't work on your weakness that's just above the bar, then suddenly that weakness drops below the bar. And as soon as that happens, then that's when your job will be at risk. So if everybody works, so if, say you got your, your whole swim school teachers or coaches or lifeguards, and everyone works on their weakness and improves by 5%, what that does to a team is massive yep. on improving the whole team and the way you work together. So that's what we sort of work on. I mean, because look, everyone's weakness is never, ever going to be you know, better than other people's strengths. So, you know, but, you, but you need to work on your weakness to keep it to a certain level in whatever job you're doing so it doesn't drop below that. Because once you hide it, never touch it and leave it, I'll tell you that it will get exposed one day. Yeah. You know, it, you can't you can't hide that forever and, and it does show up at some stage and that's when you get yourself in trouble. And the, the longer you leave it, obviously the harder it is then to work on to get it back up. Now, whether that's with... You know, with us, it could be customer service. It could be doing first aids, the rescue board, you know, various things and no different, I suppose, to the coaches in the pool. You've got all different things you need to do and you need to keep working on everything.
0: Yeah, and that's a major point. And I know, you know, a lot of people, especially anyone that suffers from anxiety, will actually look at their weaknesses and sort of focus on them and put themselves down for them. So it's a fine line of how much do you focus on to build it up and where's that tipping point of you focus on it too much and you put yourself down and there's also the school of thought of you know focusing on your strengths focus on the stuff that you're good at but you do like you said need to improve what you are weak at because you need that baseline and if you don't it drops down it's and I think for you guys being lifeguards that if at any stage it does drop down, it'll show up in those really emergency circumstances where you need to be on the ball and it could become a hindrance.
1: Yeah, 100%. It'll, um, it'll, it'll show up pretty quick and that's something that, you know, you've got to work on. I mean, your strengths, generally your strengths, are, 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 but a lot of it is natural because that's why, you know, you don't have to work on it as as hard and that's why people probably try and keep working on their strengths because it's easy <laughs> for them.
0: Yeah, so. good point
1: it's not It's not easy working on your stuff that that doesn't come as easy and, and we all do we all try and shy away from that because we don't want to be exposed but we've sort of got the, a workplace now where people come up and say what their weakness is whereas years ago I think and a lot of people probably still to today worry about if the, if the company finds out that that's my weakness they're going to get rid of me, but they've got to keep thinking that their weakness is above the bar that that job is setting because otherwise you wouldn't be there. Yeah, uh, you'd, be, you'd be you wouldn't get the job because they would see that that we're not suitable because that whatever it is you're not up to up to that level. You can very easily drop below the bar if you don't continually work on it.
0: Yeah, yeah, well said. And that's something you never really think of. In yeah, that there is that bar there, and you've got that job, but you've got to be able to keep to that standard or above it. Yeah.
1: Because everyone's got to admit, we all, we all have weaknesses, but the weakness might be, it's not that bad that you're going to get sacked. Yeah. You know? But if you let that weakness go for five years, well, then potentially when it gets exposed, you could then, you know, not going to fit in. Or I always see a lot of people that don't work on their weakness over the years of lifeguard, but then don't get a team leader position and then can't understand why not because all they do is talk about their strength. Yeah, yeah, but what about this side of it? Yeah. You know, when you're coming into a management role, you need a lot more than just being able to swim and paddle a rescue board.
0: Yeah, what have you done? And if you show improvement, you know, they're more likely to go, okay, they're improving it, they're trying, how can we help them? More than, oh, they're not showing any improvement at all. Well, obviously they don't care. Yeah. We're not going to give it.
1: And I'm I'm big on too. I mean, everyone's got to have the skill level for the for the ocean. But you also, when people leave, you know what their personality is. And then person coming in, you've got to work the personalities as well because if you have too many people in the same personality they're just going to butt heads yeah you might have someone that you know we've had over the years someone might be better in the water but their personality compared to someone else is a little bit not as good in the water but their personality is going to fit the team way better so the team will work at a higher rate than what someone else so you get that person in there that that disrupts the team, you know, they can be the best in in whatever part of the the field, but it's not going to work. The whole team will come down. So when you're working with teams, different if it's individual sort of jobs and things, that's different because it's all about the one person. But when you're working on teams, you really got to weigh up a whole lot of other factors than just the, um, and we have that problem because we're employed by local council, their set standards of, of how you do interviews and, and all that sort of stuff it's based on basically an interview on how someone speaks but that necessarily I mean someone can sit down and and have that much bs that it sounds like the best person in the world but as soon as they go and do the job they're terrible or their personality is not what you thought it was so you really got to weigh up a lot of things and that's the way we work you know right or wrong you know people probably would disagree with how that that is but it's no different to a sports team you need to really weigh up the whole lot to to get the best out of the team because your outcome is you want the a great team yeah great individuals
0: yeah and they all play their special roles in it and you can see by watching the show that you know you have your role maxi when he was going he had his role all of them have yeah. their special roles and what they do and what they bring to the lifeguarding. And I think, yeah, you've got to be able to match that. You can't have two people as the roosters in it and the managers, but then you can't have your weakest link is how weak the team is as well. So you've yeah. got to build that up as well. Yeah. Yeah. It is a fine line. And I suppose that's where you get to do the trainee part of it, where they're on, is it for three months where they?
1: it's 18 months on the traineeship and they're employed by the college and then the college yeah if they don't work out that they don't stay but and then from there if a position comes available they can apply for that position but we already know how they work and and how they fit in with the team so it makes it easier so you can train them how you want them to be trained
0: yeah yeah best of both worlds then So this one might be a bit different in the lifeguard perspective, but how can an individual or the whole aquatic industry promote and develop learn to swim, competitive swimming, lifeguard or aquatics in general to encourage more participants? And is there a chance we can do that with less funding?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, difficult when obviously we all need the funding to be able to do things. And I mean, I know at the moment it's, the stuff I've been doing with with Float to Survive, because my theory is on that is there should be steps. There's, there's the first thing anyone should learn, whether you're an adult or, or a child has never been around the water, is learn to float first. Yeah. Once you learn to float, then you learn to kick your legs or use your arms or dog paddle or whatever to get to the side of the pool. Because I'm finding now that nine-month, 12-month-year-olds can, can basically float in their back after training, And then when they start going to the side of the pool, they roll over and rest by floating and then go again. That takes out that panic. And, you know, a lot of people can't afford, I suppose, a lot of the lessons and and trying to encourage people into the, the swimming. I think it's more like the Olympics now. And I suppose like lifeguards with people with the higher profiles that need to then put back, I think, into the sport. You know, they've made it through whichever way, whatever they've done to get to... The top of their sport but i think we lose the mentors i think for kids to look up to to, to go into that sport yeah uh, and i think that that's something that probably they should work on across across the board but it doesn't even have to be like a, a someone that's you know at the top of their level going to the olympic games it could be someone in their swim club that has the respect and, and does a lot of work and could be a coach, it could be just someone that turns up every day to the center and, and use those people, utilise those people to bring in others, you know, to the aquatic centers to, to I think that's what you mean to the swimming schools and because I mean at the end of the day, that there's only a small percentage that they're gonna make it to an Olympic Games.
0: Mm. Yeah and when you look at I suppose the amount of if you're thinking of the Olympic Games yeah like you said small percentage there is however many go into the Olympic trials and they take a team of I can't remember how many 12 or 24 you know how many compete it can be hundreds going through the Olympic trials to get that cream of the crop. Now those ones that have tried it doesn't mean then they're not you know they're not good enough on that day or that time but they're still able to then share what they do and, like you said, mentor other people through and take that that journey and the knowledge they develop and put it back in.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, you think all the swimming squads, there'll be people that kids coming along will look up to that person that's there. They might only be doing, you know, they might only be at the state level, but still kids will look up to those people. And I think that's something that each, probably maybe each swimming club, need to identify that and work on that sort of thing and and promote their own clubs to, to try and bring in more, more kids into it. But I mean, it's not, there's no hard and fast rule and and it's not easy either because there's so many options for kids these days to do other things. I suppose the sport of swimming, it's such a dedication as well. It's not like, going out and playing you know all hollow of kids playing soccer and, and as a team sport you know swimming is, is quite isolated you, you're on your own swimming up and down up and down and so there's a factor of trying to come up with something that's going to encourage kids to do that in a sport that's that it's a tough sport mentally anyway
0: yeah and that's it and like you said with you know your training it's to giving them that purpose why are they there are they there for fitness are they there to try for the olympics are they there to get to national level you know are they there because the parents are throwing them in and they've had to do it or are they there to get water safety so they can go to another aquatic environment and be safe around the water i think we need to understand why they're there yeah yeah I also think it's amazing the work that you guys do. I mean, you are emphasised and put out there because you are on Bondo Rescue. We see you and we see what you do. But the extension of work that you guys do outside of Bondo Rescue, yourself, you do a, a lot of different products. I know Maxi has gone on and done the water safety side as well. And there would be a number of ones out there that I don't know. But do you want to touch on some of the stuff that you're doing now and share your new projects?
1: Well, I suppose we've been working on uh, Surf Educators International. We've been doing for probably 10 years now, but we're really pushing that float to survive. And we've realised that we work with a lot of multicultural communities who really don't understand a lot about the waterways. They never understand like red and yellow flags be- because that's what we promote. But the problem with that, there's only 5% of beaches around Australia have red and yellow flags. So... You know, and we tend to just keep pushing that message. If you're a company, you don't push 5% of your company and leave 95% doing nothing. So I've never understood why we, our main message, it it is part of the message that swim between the red and yellow flags, but it's not the primary message. Yeah, Everyone drowning, they're not drowning between the flags. They're drowning at beaches where they're not patrolled. So it'd be no different to aquatic centres. Have some aquatic centers with no lifeguards. There'd be a good chance people will probably drown with no lifeguards at the pool. But every aquatic center has a lifeguard. We need to then build and put in place more lifeguard services up and down the coast where the beaches, where people are drowning and going to. I mean, people holidaying, they're going to go to areas all up and down the coastline. And the other thing that they don't understand is want really one message. And we thought float is the perfect message because. If you do that in any waterway, whether you're 12 months old or you're 90 years old, you're not going to drown if you can float and keep your head above water. Yeah. Right? The theory of our oh, rips pull you under and all this stuff, and sandbanks collapse. And you know, sandbanks can't collapse. That's just a myth. It's what it that is, is a volume of water in waves, like they call them the sets. So sets are a, a two or three. Bigger waves that come in, so they've got a more volume of water. The volume of water hits the sandbank, and when there's more water, it lifts you up. So it feels like the bottom drops away, but actually, there's more water and lifts you up off the bottom.
2: Oh, okay. The feeling,
1: but the feeling is that, that the bottom drops away. It's impossible for a sandbank to. You need a, a, an atomic bomb there to blow a sandbank up. So that that's a, a myth. It's more the more volume of water that pulls. You, to, you can't touch the bottom. Now. With the, uh, the floating, you know, whether a lot of people in, we've done a lot of work in India. Now, a lot of kids in India are drowning in the side of the roads because their roads are so bad, there's no gutters or, or water gets away. And it, it, when it rains, it, the whole side of the, the roadways form massive puddles.
2: Wow. Um,
1: so kids walking around that fall into those puddles that can't stand up because they're pretty deep, they're drowning in those situations. Wow. Now, you think if that person could float,
0: yeah.
1: right, it's like being in a bathtub. Yeah. So you're not going to drown. So it's trying to teach, you know, change the behaviour of people and just teaching floating. And then even in the ocean, you can, you know, if you float, you've got a better chance. But plus, as I said before, you'll get to a point where you're swimming and swimming and swimming you get nowhere. So why not stop, float, get your breath, take it easy, Work out where you're going, what you're doing. There might be someone, a board rider close by that you can yell out to. Yep. Right? You're minimising that panic. So that's something that we've found is really working. And even in Thailand, they're using two litre coca, empty Coca-Cola bottles and they're hanging onto them on their chest so they can float. Once they get good enough, they let that go and they can float on their own. They've reduced drowning by 50%, just yeah. by 50 people. Not even teaching them to swim, just to float. Wow. The other thing is if you can float, if I'm going to go rescue you and you can float for, say, two, three minutes, there's a good chance that you're going to be rescued. Yep. Right? Even though I said before that rips will pull you across on your own, but if you don't do that and just float, someone will rescue you at some stage. But if you can only float for four seconds, the time I run in and get in and get to you, you're under the water. Mm. So whether you can swim or not swim. So you can – I've seen people – as I said, going to that karate chop in seconds, now that lactic acid build up, they only last about five seconds before they're going under. But if they relax and float they've got a way better chance of survival. No different to a a, a child in a backyard pool that gets away. And I mean, how many drownings we have in backyard pools in Australia, they go in and just float, they're out there floating. So when the parent comes looking for them, they're floating out in the pool rather than being on the bottom Yep. And we're teaching like with you know their nappies on, their shoes on, their clothes on, exactly how you'd be if you fall into the pool. Yeah. So it's a whole progression thing, I think, that and then and then obviously you, you know, as you get better, you start swimming, then you start swimming laps and and trying to understand the the level that you're at, I think. I think people
0: mm.
1: underestimate the levels that they're at.
0: But I think it also Because it can be used in any aquatic environment. Like you said, in India, and the the potholes on the side of the road, I mean, if they can float, then they can start sort of paddling with one arm and they can feel for the edge because it's like a bath that's quite close. Inland waterway drownings are happening a lot more. And around here, you know, everyone goes to the river. It's either you go to the river for holiday or you go to Bali. (laughs) And lately it's been to the river because we can't go to Bali. But yeah, you know, in those situations where you don't realise that there is a current under the water, the temperatures are too different on top compared to underneath. Even simple things like floating there and, you know, pushing that current will push you over to the side. Yeah, It can relate in anywhere. It can relate in a bath. It can relate in the backyard pool, out in rivers, in the ocean, all areas.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, with Australia alone, majority of drownings are um, in flat water. Yeah. Not in the ocean. There's, there's more inland drownings than there are in the ocean, anyway and people are saying we took a school oh, a couple of years ago on the northern beaches so close to the beaches and out of 400 kids only 40 could swim a 50 meter without having to stop and touch the, the, the lane rope.
0: wow yep right
1: so and what's happening now is we've, we've lost that the Aussie culture of, of booming and in the um and in the ocean because we've had so many people move here, multicultural people that have moved to Australia and they haven't got that. And I find the parents aren't pushing the kids because they're scared the parents are scared of the water and waterways. So if you're scared of something you've got a child, first thing you're gonna do is not let them do it. Yeah, yeah. You know? And I think also we always say dangerous rips. I think we should get away saying dangerous because rips aren't dangerous. I mean the, the thing with rips. My sayings are, rips don't drown people, people drown in rips. I like that. So this is one thing that <clears throat> we need to get away from is if you tell your child or, or, or even if the messaging is dangerous rips, dangerous rips, when you're in that position and you go, oh, I'm in a rip, and all you've been told is dangerous, the first thing you're going to think of is I'm going to die.
0: Yeah, straight you know?
1: away. So, But they're not. I mean, growing up as a kid... Dad and everyone else that was at the beach would be taught when you're surfing, go in the rib because it'll just pull you across to where the waves are and you'd line up. You'd sit there and, You know all the surfers sit there lined up ready to catch a wave in. So you just catch the wave back down the line, which is you're coming in a lot with the wave on the line, but the water then on the outside of that's running back out to where you started. Yep. So it's just a flow of water that just does a big sort of circle. The water comes in. The water that comes in needs to move back away from the from the shore. So, so it's just a, a well, flow. I do all the
0: work paddling?
1: Yeah, and, and then you look at – so you're not doing the paddling. And then also you're not getting the, as many breaking waves as well. You look at the theory of wave pools. Wave pools are exactly a rip. Wave pools, if the water runs out one side, then the wave breaks and it comes in, that water runs back around – it's just a flow, just a flowing water. You know, it doesn't pull you. And nothing. no water pulls you under. The reason you go under, is, like I said earlier, is, is the fatigue and lactic acid build up and panic that, that you actually go under the water. So, but this is one, Surf Educators International, something we're trying to um, get out there. And overseas, we're trying to work hard with different organisations and, and governments. And I'm trying to get this into, um, I don't know how many schools these days have to do well, I remember when I went to school, I used to go for two weeks and have to learn jump in with your clothes on and jump in the water and do all these different things for two weeks. I don't know how much that happens now in, in schools, but I think what we're probably trying to do is get the government to legislate floating and have programs in place that everybody gets to learn that, because obviously at the moment that, that's you know there's a cost. Some families, you know, people are struggling, aren't going to afford to even send their kids to, to lessons, you know, and that's probably another problem. But if it becomes a part of the school curriculum, you know, here, as we get through decades, you know, these people will understand and, and at least give them the basic survival skill of, to float, whether they go on and then learn more swimming or, or anything like that. Because I also find at the beach... They'll take the kids when they're three, four years old, five years old and give them swimming lessons. But once they can see they can swim, say, one lap of the pool, they stop the swimming lessons yeah. and think they're fine. Yeah. But as you said too with the rivers, if you're in a river and you've done more strokes than you're 50 metres and you're not to the side of the bank, well, you're not going to survive anyway. So it's just it's funny how they think that as soon as you can roll the arms over and, and, and swim a lap of the pool, you're, you're a swimmer.
0: Yeah, and that's a big bugbear for swim schools because that the parents have this idea, my kid can swim. It can save itself, we don't have to, and we can just stop. And I think, like, they started saying, okay, if you can swim a K, then, you know, that was the benchmark. You get your kid to swim a K and then you can get out. Now it's 2K, they're saying, because if you do get stuck and you, you can survive, then you're fit enough to survive out on the beach for 2Ks. And the trouble is... You know, especially where we are, they do, we go to the beach over summer. We all have holidays to the beach. Yep. You know, once a year, that's when your family goes out into the ocean. At the same time, they're doing swimming lessons here because we're a summer-only pool. But otherwise, they're not getting that experience. They're going out once or twice to the ocean a year. Yep. And they're just throwing in and they're not experienced enough in it. Yep.
1: And that's what we're doing too now with the ocean side of the, the float to survive. Is we're putting everybody in the rips, so we've got instructors and it's controlled situation. They're getting in the rips and then getting taken around and onto the sandbanks or the, where the waves are breaking and coming back in, and running. Then the kids now, it's like a ride for them, and they get they they they're running back down the beach to jump back in again to get taken and just float there and get taken around and back.
2: Wow!
1: So it's the same thing though. Is, is my theory is you need experience. You need to experience something to understand something. So like I said, I can could, I could go to schools and talk and talk and talk and the old days of, you know, putting up, the, these are the flags and these are the dangerous current signs and all this sort of stuff, which is all great. It's a part of learning water safety and, you know, swimming between the flags. But that's not going to stop drowning. As soon as the person's in that water, they're going to drown. But as soon, we've had people especially multicultural people have come and done this, have gone to down the South coast on holidays and found that they've got themselves into a rip and in trouble. Did what we said. They said they did nothing. They just floated and then ended up standing up on the sandbank and walking back in.
2: Wow. So if they hadn't learnt
1: that, they would have gone to a mass panic, tried to swim and ended up drowning. Cause the first thing I've worked out with the human beings is where you enter for some reason, is where you want to exit.
0: Oh wow! <laughs> right,
1: so where you enter the water at the beach, wherever it is, and you get taken by the current and, and the rip, they want to come back to where they actually went. In. They think that that's where you need to exit is where you enter. I need to get back to that point. Yeah. Whereas you might only have five meters from wherever you've ended up to be able to stand up somewhere else, but they want to come all the way back to where they ended. So it's it's just a a Indeed. behavior sort of mindset that we need to change and and I think that the floating is is one of the uh, biggest messages and the other problem we've got is also I found you're not going to get everybody I mean if everybody in Australia could float you'd have no drowning yeah unless it's a, unless, unless it's an accident or some freak thing that that you know if you get knocked out or something obviously floating is not going to work but that's extreme circumstances Yep. We can't get everybody to the beach to learn. So we've designed a virtual reality where you actually feel like you're floating. You go into the tower, you go through a whole lot of educational up onto the, in the helicopter fly over beach where the rips are. And they're sort of like rips on how they look. Then for people that don't know, we illuminate the rip so they know where that, how that water's actually moving. Wow. Go down under the underwater and then you're in underneath the rip looking up on how the rip works above you. And then you actually get put in where you're in a rip floating. You've got to put your arms in a sort of like a floating position. And there's all different ways. Some people, as you said, some people feel more comfortable floating on their back. Because if people ask me, oh, well, what's the best way to float? Well, floating is basically just upright treading water on your back. Some people like floating on their stomach. like the, Whatever you feel comfortable with, as long as the you're not using energy and your head's above water, yeah, is basically the end result. So then the once you get to learn the rips, and and it's funny how realistic it is because we do it. You can just do it in a in an office, and then when people again the point where they're going under, as soon as you drop your arms or not in a right floating sort of a, a technique, you'll go under the water and you see people putting their head up because they're starting to go underwater.
2: Oh, wow. And they're
1: sitting in a chair or just standing in a room. Yeah. But it's so realistic. And when they come out, they go, yeah, I actually, I understand and get what you what people mean now with flooding in a rib." Yeah. So that's the virtual reality side of things I think is going to be the future of getting to multiple people.
0: How also, do we get a hold of that?
1: Yeah, we can we can come do demonstrations and, and things like that because we're looking at funding now to, so we can roll it out. So the more people that know and experience it, and then hopefully the governments will then go, well, okay, we'll we'll fund it and we'll roll it out. So it could be schools, multicultural communities. It could be aquatic centres. You know, we come to aquatic centres and do a whole... We can do demonstrations in the pool, but also they've got the virtual reality. So the idea is go through the virtual reality first, then go and do practical actually in the pool and see how much you've learned through that thing. And a lot of other people too have got that fear factor of water. So so by doing virtual reality, you'll get the feeling of it, but they feel a bit safer. And hopefully by going through the virtual reality, they can then go and join, you know, swim schools or other areas or aquatic centers and go there and then practice what they're being taught. So it's been quite successful. Also, in the not developed yet, the only thing we've developed at the moment is the floating, but you can have resuscitation, you have rock fishing, there's a whole various of waterways, activities that you just press on it and also you can change it when we get going. You can press your own language so I can just switch to the whatever language you speak rather than just not all English. So yep. there's ways of helping the, the, the communities that don't understand English that well, it can go into their language. So... It's um, a tool that I think could be, you know, it's just above the prototype at the moment, but it's obviously enough to show people what it's about. And then hopefully we can get some funding and roll it out.
0: That'd be amazing because, yeah, how many more people can you touch on? You, you know, you could send it out here to, you know, Pyramid and Country Victoria and touch on these kids here that, you know, travel in once or yeah. in the middle of the outback, those kids yeah. that you know they're when it floods, they're swimming or yeah. swimming in dams or the May River and things like that. That's yeah. a fantastic way, and as you said, it's so realistic.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's really good. And uh, the other things I've got my podcast, I do Life's a Beach, so uh, that's something that touches on from, from the lifeguards to water safety to um, you know, fun stuff with uh, different people with their athletes or their you know, just a, a a normal person with a really good story and we touch a lot on the mental health side of things. And like I was speaking about earlier, everyone has their their down times and their good times and, you know, people are successful and they fail. And there's a whole, all these stories just come out and they resonate with certain people and the stories. And so that's uh, something that I've been doing now for six months, the podcast. And so Life's a Beach is something that it's been getting a lot of, hits and especially internationally too there's a because of my profile with the Bondi rescue in about 150 countries there's a lot of people um that are tuning in from all around the world so
0: yeah
1: uh, that's that's something that that I've been doing as well
0: that's brilliant and i think like you said you're one of those mentors that you know you're lucky to be in the limelight and to be able to take advantage of that and use these that time to promote these amazing services that you're doing i think that's fantastic
1: yeah, I think people out there that have got profiles or they've got, you know, they excel in certain areas, I think they need to, you know, we, we all need to put back. If we don't put back, we the next generations coming through aren't going to learn and, and you know, I'm hoping, you know, one day I'm not going to be there at, at Bondi. So you want people coming through that can take over and, and make the place even better than what it is now. You want people to keep doing it. No different aquatic centres, you know, swimming, you want everything to keep improving and people to come through and you know you want people to come through that ends up you know better than what I am there's always better people that are going to come through in the future so but they need that mentoring they need that training to come up with the the new stuff for the for the generations in the future
0: yeah that's right now one other project I wanted to touch on just because my kids absolutely love it and we can't go when it's in the morning to the school bus unless unless we've watched it. Is the Kangaroo Beach? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's <laughs> a, that's a, a project that we've been doing for oh, I was probably a few years, I suppose. It's animation. Anyone doesn't know or, or watch Kangaroo Beach, but it's uh, it's basically being a lifeguard, sort of like Bondi Rescue, in animation. Really, it's yeah. Uh, yeah something that the kids are really loving. It's probably targeting more your two-year-olds to, to eight-year-olds, I suppose, and it's sort of the younger generations. But, uh, yeah, Kangaroo Beach is something that came along, and the rider, Tim Bain, approached me, and they wanted to get the water safety messaging correct. They had the idea, and he took me and Craig Riddington, the extra man, on board. And so we did all the, the water safety stuff and what we did was they'd write the scripts. The scripts would come to us. We'd read the scripts, change it to make sure that it matched water safety um, techniques. So that was like a, it's basically a two-year process to get animation on TV. It takes so long. Wow. Like a six-month sort of going back and forward in ideas and in what type of storylines we could use.
2: Yep. Then it
1: goes six months to to the scripts that get written by the writers then it goes into animatic which is a basically animation you've got to sketch every single scene on a, on a sketchboard. sketchboard, wow. um, and then once that's done the voiceover the voiceover goes matches that and then it goes from there into the colour into the animation in what you see on, on TVs about the next six months after that so yeah there's a lot of um, work that's involved with it but I think the reason why I wanted to push the Kangaroo Beach is the amount of people who have come back out of watching Bondi Rescue who have said, and one that stands out, there's a, a lady from Darwin and her child years ago now, maybe over 10 years ago, she was a fanatic fan of Bondi Rescue, watched every episode and she watched the resuscitations we did. Now her child was about, I think, two years old, fell in the backyard pool. She came out, it was on the bottom Non responsive. Wow. Pulled him, jumped in, pulled him out, and started resuscitation. Never been trained in any resuscitation, medical, or, or whatever. She just did basically what she saw off the TV show.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, whether
1: she was doing 100% or not 100%, it didn't really matter. She had a go, and it was enough to keep him alive till paramedics came. And then he ended up making a full recovery. Wow. And to this day, she said that. If that TV show wasn't there, she probably would have stood at the end of the pool and just watched her on the bottom and not even know what to do. So. And when you speak to paramedics, a lot of them say when they go to backyard pool drownings, a lot of the time people are still standing around the pool and the child's still on the bottom. So no one even jumps in to pull the, pool, the, the child out. Well, now, whether that's because they're not confident in the water or the panic that sets in, no one knows what to do. So no one does anything. Yep. So that's was a bit of an eye opener for me that the paramedics would say that. And then, so Kangaroo Beach just seems to have the perfect fit, you know, for kids. And I realized that, well, if Bondi Rescue is getting to people and adults and they're learning, why not do a kid's one in animation? You know, kids are going to take that away and they're going to get educated and know what to do. So that's been quite successful. It's been going well. I mean, a lot of people are watching it now. It's just, it's just hit the UK as well. So it's just gone overseas into the UK. And to anyone out there in Australia, you can get it on ABC or go to iview. You can uh, see Kangaroo Beach. And it's great for the kids and great learning. And, and I think a lot of kids too will... There's one episode... Because the problem we have at the beach now too is and there's a, 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 a baby's pool down at North Bondi, the kids' pool. Parents now are coming down, putting their kids running in the water... And they're sitting there, and they're, but they're on their phones
2: yeah.
1: and not paying attention to the child. And, and we did an episode with that, with parents on their phones and the, and the kids, and kids are now coming up to the parents when the parents are sitting there on the phone in, in real life telling them, you need to go off the phone because I'm going in for a swim. You need to watch me. So it's brilliant. It's starting to work now. that the, the kid, And that shows that kids are taking notice of yeah. the show because now they're, they're telling the parents, yeah you know, this this is what you should be doing when I'm going into the water, so at least that messaging is getting out there, and uh, hopefully we can start they're they're looking at doing a second series and I think that's just another way of educating people around waterways and it's not only the ocean with kangaroo beach, we do also there's a lagoon as well, and we um talk about that in in the lagoon and and all different little educational fun sort of scenarios.
0: And there was a pool one as well. I remember them doing the swimming race and yep. you know, over-exhaust and exhausted themselves and that. And I, I think also what you've got really well with that show is that every character has a different personality. You know, my daughter loves being fizzy
2: yep.
0: and, you know, she'll get up and start prancing her stuff around and doing yes. songs and making songs. And she's at the beach. She, like I said to you in the email or at Yapoon and she's there singing away on the beach, being fizzy and, and then, you know, they'll talk to each other and they'll role-playing being Kangaroo Beach
2: yeah.
0: characters. And I think that was absolutely amazing that they can remember what happens in the show and then role-play it out on the beach. And for me, that was the first hand of, my gosh, this, this stuff actually works. They're not just watching it for entertainment purposes. They are taking in what they're showing. And that's when I think for me it became, you know, at 7 o'clock now when... Bondo Rescue comes on I've sort of if it happened to pop on I had control of the remote I'd stop and watch it but now it's everyone shut up I'm watching Bondi Rescue (laughs) it's my research because yeah I've learned so much even just what you said about the floating and things like that I've picked that up in there and I now pass it on to the participants in my courses and also those in my swim school as well.
1: Yeah yeah Um, you know I think what we just need to keep messaging simple and and that's what we've done with one bond rescue, and, and now Kangaroo Beach, and and also the, the you know, float to survive campaign that I'm doing. It's just keep it as one message is going to keep help so many people. And obviously, underneath all that, and the swim schools are the same. Like if float to survive is your main message, whether you're in an aquatic centre, an ocean, or, or wherever you're working, it makes it so much easier for people that don't understand anything about the waterways. Yeah, and then from there, underneath that, obviously. You know, we've got the red and yellow flags to swim between. We've got other things that we bring in underneath. No different to aquatic centres and swim schools. Get that basic one first, then say, okay, underneath that, yeah, now you learn to get to the side or, you know, using your arms, dog paddle. There's a progression I think we have with, with the whole process. And I think then that simplifies it to people. People understand the difference. And, I mean, no doubt that the aquatic centres do do that. They do have a different levels that... You know, kids get to then they go up to the next one because they've, they've progressed to the next level and I think that's what it should be there should be a basic level of survival mm. and then you know if they fall in the water they're, they're going to be okay and then keep going through those steps and hopefully one day you might end up swimming in the Olympics.
0: Yeah yeah that's it start from that simple level but it's really got me thinking I mean here where I am in Pyramid Hill in country Victoria our town is the only way it survived is because we've had a lot of Filipino families come over to work in the local piggeries. And a lot of them, it's, you know, I've been teaching here now six years and I'm only starting to get a few Filipino families in my classes now. But if I could go in and say, okay, I'm going to run a four week program or even, you know, a two week program on how to learn to float and survive. Yeah they're getting that basic knowledge and that's all they're getting is that float to survive yeah. and maybe a bit of how to get a bit of propulsion to get yeah. to the edge. They're getting that touch. They don't have to take on the full lesson and learn any more if they don't want to, but then we've also got that engagement that we can try and continue and get them to take on the full lesson well, and learning that skill.
1: Yeah, 100%. And that's, that's, see so what you, they don't realize is if you do that for two weeks, it's just an introduction and, mm. It's a survival skill. But then once they do that, yeah, probably eight to nine out of 10 will then continue on into the programs to learn to do more, you know, start using your arms, kicking your legs, you know, swimming a lap of the pool. You know, there's a progression and that, that's a way to get people in. I think people coming in, especially adults, I've found they're not going to go to a squad swimming. Even if it's an adult squad or a, or a beginner squad, because most of those people can swim up and down a certain amount of laps. Yeah. You can't do that. You're too embarrassed to jump in with them and try and do it. So you're never, ever going to do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas if you've got ones for just learn to float, once they get that skill level, it might be enough to get them to that, you know, up to another level and get them interested. And they'll tell other people. And then next thing you know, your whole community there are coming to learn to float and get that skill.
0: Yep. And how simple is it? And I think if you don't mind, I might steal some of it and reference back to the float and survive. But, you know, coming into summer, the lead up to summer and as it gets hotter, we need to build that media coverage and that connection. How simple is it to get a news report and say, okay, we're going to learn to float to survive? That's the main skill you've got to do.
1: I mean, for instance, we could come down I know you guys, the aquatic centre, connected with the employed by the council as a private aquatic centre or?
0: Uh, we're just an outdoor pool that's connected with the council.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we could liaise with the council, put on a, a day or, a, or whatever, you know, and we just get the, our time that's covered type thing and we could put all that on and, and have a day of and even have that Bondi Rescue slash, you know, coming down and make a, a, a day of it. It's something like that that could start that process. And then our idea is then we've aligned with a lot of councils up in Sydney because obviously we can't do everything. But the idea I've got is I'll come in with my profile, get the people to the pools, introduce it all to it, but then leave it with you guys to carry that on into the future where you're teaching that side of it. Then you'll see, then you're going into what you've always, what you're doing now. The way I'm where I'm coming from is you guys are doing a percentage of water safety and stuff anyway, because but those they're turning up. Mine is to get people to your pool that aren't gonna go to the pool on their own.
2: Yeah.
1: It's trying to drive more people in. So if we can drive another 10, 20 people in, hopefully they bring their family. Then they'll go away till other people, hopefully then they bring that those people in. And you're just educating more people in that float and and even on the what we're doing now with councils they're putting on their websites our logo float to survive so even just that message of float float to survive float to survive and and people just tend to get that in their head as i said try and change the behavior of people and you know we're not there to teach people to swim this program is not to teach people to actually swim It's, it's basically to survive in water
0: yep so it's not going to hinder, it's going to enhance what a swim school
1: already does. Some swim schools think that, oh, but you're going to come take over this and take over that. Well, we're not interested in, in doing all that stuff because they're already doing that.
0: Yeah.
1: Ours is is to bring the people in with no ability at all, teach them to float that technique to survive. And then that, from there, it's then off to you guys to continue that and keep those people coming through the pools and take them up to whatever level. I don't know, you might find someone that starts off doing that, that ends up going to the Olympics. Who knows?
0: Yeah, that's it. Yep, and just by introducing them to it when they normally wouldn't have touched the pool before.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, with Ian Thorpe's the same. He got introduced to the pool for a health reason, I think. And, you know, look what happened with with him. If if he didn't have that, I think it was asthma or or whatever the health reason was, he may never have been a swimmer. Yeah. You know, so you never know that who you're going to get but it will definitely solve and reduce drowning if if, and I think people get it I think if you every single person in Australia could float I'm pretty sure the drownings would be very very small
0: yeah yeah and I mean that's one thing that I've emphasized in my career because you know when I first met my husband he spoke about when he was eight nine years old and went swimming with the school and jumped into the deep end and sank like a lead balloon to the bottom. And I thought to myself, Oh, it's just cause you've never had any training. You've only really swam up to your waist, but I put my middle son into the water and he does the exact same thing. Eyes open smiles and sits at the bottom of the pool yeah. really shocked me. He, now that he's done lessons, he knows how to float. He knows how to propel himself through the water. He can come up <laughs> and it's amazing to see that what you can do. It is a learned skill. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, that's right. And, and, you know, people say they can't. You know, look at Olympians, right? Real good ones have to train hard, but their flotation is amazing.
2: Yeah.
1: So people think, oh, you just use your arms and you can swim. But if you can't float, y- your arms are only going to go for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Um, the, be- the better you can float, the better you're going to swim.
2: Yeah.
1: Their flotation, and a lot of people – are naturally very good at with flotation and that's why they end up being olympic swimmers because you know even though you do the hard work you've got to still have a a fair bit of natural flotation
0: yeah you're still going to be on top of the water there's no point swimming underneath yeah. you're still going to be able to float on top
1: yeah, yeah and that's what i was saying to people like i, I could have gone and, and swum i got to a certain level but i could have swum and train and train and train but i'm never ever going to make the olympics because my flotation isn't to the level that needs to be to get to that, to that point. So really everything in the water comes back to flotation. I mean, when people fall in the water and they say, I need to wear a life jacket to go rock fishing. Well, what's a life jacket do? You fall in the water, it keeps you afloat. Yep. Right. So, you know, a surfboard, what do you do in a pool? You throw something to them, a kickboard or whatever, so they can hold themselves up. But what's the kickboard doing? It's keeping afloat. Right. So if you're a floating can't drown, that's the, yep. I'm trying to get across to everybody that, you know, whether you're holding a, a two-litre empty Coke bottle or you're holding a, a noodle or you're holding a, a kickboard, you know, that's proof that floating is a survival skill. So yeah. throw all those away. You should be able to do that without that, and that would be even a better scenario.
0: Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. Isn't it better to be able to float and do all that without the aids that's than right. to you know, in the off chance that you're going to go in fully clothed or you haven't brought a life jacket, or you haven't got a Coke bottle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Teach them they can go in.
1: And I mean, and also we've got cultures living in Australia now that go in with clothes.
0: Yeah. Yes.
1: So, you know, that's another thing. So realistically what we do now is that you you train them with what you're going to go into the water with is what you should train to do. I know they've got certain suits now that, that help. The different communities now have to go swimming, but you know, you've really got to look at the bigger picture and, and say, Right, well, if you're going to go on the water, dress whatever way you are, well, that's how you need to learn to float.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. You're going down a prime example is right now in winter, you're going down to the beach, you're not going to go out in your speedos, you're going to be walking the beach. in track pants and jeans or you know leggings and things like that so they need to be able to get used to that sort of stuff
1: and the other thing too they've designed uh, over in the uk with the when you mentioned the cold water the theory now is when you jump in the and you're in trouble in, in freezing water the first thing people think or, or what you should do is swim to get out of it <laughs> but they've found people are surviving more by floating because when you're floating in cold water, your body's slowly adjusting to the temperature. Yeah. Whereas if you're swimming and exerting yourself, the cold water even takes away more energy quicker than when it's warmer water. Yeah. So they're finding people swimming are dying way more than people are just there relaxing, floating, even if it's freezing water.
0: Yeah. And I think also I read somewhere where you go into these cold waters and your body's first response is to spasm and to compress and to start and you know to close up um and that's then taking that energy if you can counter react that action and breathe and relax and float then it, yeah like you said it would give it time for the body to adjust to the temperature
1: yeah yeah it does it's been proven now over in the uh, in the uk so yeah it's um fascinating but <clears throat> i mean anyone out there that wants to get in contact or get in contact with you and you know, we want to start rolling all this out and aligning with aquatic centres, councils, uh, surf schools, whoever it is, it's just partnering in with, with these people and, you know, trying to get this float to survive message out and have that in in all the, the teachings. And, you know, obviously everyone does what they do, which they can continue doing all that as well. It's just another... We just want to bring another component into water safety. Around what everyone else is already doing a great job at
0: yeah and how can they get in contact with you i'll put it in the show notes but how's the best way to get in contact with you
1: you can go surf educators international uh, on the website just google that and they'll have all the information about what we do and contact details and so just uh go into that website
0: brilliant and like I said, I'll put it in the show notes, but I think that's something we need to put out there and use it as a way of enhancing and not look at it as a competition.
1: Yeah, I mean, we come with a whole package of we've got the flight to survive. I also then mentor and come in and speak to lifeguards. I've been doing that with, the, with aquatic centres with pool lifeguards, explaining about patrolling strategies and how we work and how then the pool's Uh, lifeguards can work Uh, also we've got the towers a lot of aquatic centers now bring in these the the towers where because at the moment they're all standing around the pool for hours as you said standing there and you know eventually you're going to lose concentration but if you've got a better patrolling strategy where one person in a in a portable tower is basically controlling everything and then the others move around and your your brakes are even though you're watching more from the tower, but you're getting out of the sun, having a break, sitting down a bit more. There's a whole structure there on how it should all work. So then they're not all drifting off and speaking to each other or, or, or thinking about what they're going to do tomorrow. And it's, it's a whole strategy of, of having that fatigue. We call it fatigue breaks at the beach because we work a lot long hours. Some days are 13 hour days. So you need those fatigue wow. breaks in there. You know, 6am to 7pm is a long day at the, at the beach. Same with aquatic centers and pools. You know, you need to have those fatigue breaks and and the standards as well. I noticed the it's funny. I, I went and did one of the councils, and the the time you had to do to become a lifeguard in a pool was like, I said, oh, you surely that's the right time. And they, yeah, and I said, oh, all right. And then what we did to, to, and and where they got it, this council's really starting to get a lot of good lifeguards coming now from other areas. So the good ones from the other councils are starting to come to work with this one because they've got patrolling the strategies in place. But one thing we did at the beach, just quickly, was to get to create a good team. And you're always going to have 10% that's going to be dead wood. And everyone, every workplace has it. So what we came up with, I thought, well, the standard for us in a pool for a life, ocean lifeguard was four, you have to swim 800 metres under 14 minutes. And really, simply, is pretty quite, if you can swim, that's pretty quite easy so i said well how about we drop it to 1330 and see how we go Now a couple of guys were swimming around that 1330 1340 at the time and they were probably hitting their 40s at the time then i said they then got under and went about 1310 1320 right because they put a little bit more work in yeah i said right Everyone, you shouldn't be a lifeguard if you can't swim 800 metres under 13 minutes because 12 minutes is roughly a good salt. Like, that's a 130, 100 pace. If you swim that, you should be doing that for a lifeguard. So we dropped to 13. These guys blew up. Oh, it's too hard, too hard. Anyway, they go, we're getting older. And I said, yeah, that's fine. I said, the ocean doesn't discriminate whether you're 18 or whether you're 60. Like, it'll, yeah. it'll belt you no matter what age you are. So... We brought the 13 minutes in Now this guy by now was getting closer to 50. So when he was 40, he was just getting under 14 minutes. Yep. But now he's only 50. He's swimming
0: 1230.
1: Wow. Right. So he's getting older, but getting faster. Yep. And the only reason he was doing that was one, he had to put a bit more work in, in, in swimming to get to that level. So, as I said earlier, he worked on his weakness where he's letting his weakness go. Worked on his weakness, got it back to that point. The other thing was, but they didn't realise, what I was doing was I was only dropping the time because I only wanted people in the team that really wanted to be there in the team. Now, if you didn't want to be there in the team, he would have not done the time and walked away and left. Yeah. Yeah. Right, So those people you don't want. Yep. The ones that got in and did it and got under the time are the ones that you want because they're passionate about being there. Now, that's what I put to these guys in the pool. They need to drop the time a little bit. So when they're dropping the time a little bit, the ones that weren't interested and just deaf because they just want to get paid, dropped off. But I said, what will happen is the good ones from other councils who are flogging everyone or, or getting under the time quite easy and really want to be a passionate and, and be a lifeguard in the pool? You'll find they'll start coming to you because you've got a, a higher standard than everyone else. Yeah, and that's what now is happening.
2: Yeah. You're
1: starting to attract the better ones to come to that pool from other council areas. Yeah, so it's a little technique that. Don't get me wrong; it's tough because you're going to have people blow up because people don't like change. But if you're on a really good team, you need to have small changes. And the ones that want to really be there will be there. Yeah. They will continue. They'll do whatever they need to do. It's like kids going to uni or whatever. They want to be a lawyer or they want to be – put a, use an Olympic swimmer as one. If they really want to be an Olympic swimmer, they'll turn up and do what they have to do mm. to get that. Yeah. So it's the same sort of theory. Now, I, I can – I bring that to people. So anyone in aquatic centres or whatever, we've got that side of things as well that we can bring in to try and build up and, and, and mentor that lifeguard team that's in, in the pools.
0: Wow, there goes my idea. I did the lifeguard course and was too slow in the swim. And I always said, oh, why do you have to do the swim? You know, why? Oh, I can still rescue people. You don't swim a 50 metre to rescue someone in the deep end. But yeah, now...
1: No, we well, that's that's true. That's a true point, and and a lot of people were, you know, were saying that. But yes, anyone probably can jump in the pool and rescue them. That's a lifeguard. Whether you can swim the time or can't swim the time, but it's to build that team, and, and, mm.
2: and
1: that, that there's a bigger picture to just being able to swim fifty meters and and do that and and jump in to rescue someone because, you know, generally. Um, It's just a matter of putting – and I don't know why we get time to train at work. I don't know why pools and aquatic centres don't allow them to have a time where they're – and they're in the pool doing some swimming. If you only swim twice a week, you'll get under the times easy.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Just what happens is people don't put the time in to do that. So Because if you don't have to, you're not going to do it.
0: No, that's it.
1: Um, So, But that was my point was not the fact you have to have a faster time to be a lifeguard – it's the fact that it's a way to get people that you that really want to be. I'm mainly just talking about lifeguards, whether it's a pool or whether it's an ocean. Mm. If you're not passionate about being a lifeguard, you'll switch off when yes. you're on duty. Now you switch off on duty. For us, someone could die. Yeah. Whereas if you switch off in an office, well, or you make a mistake, you generally can you, you can generally fix that up. But in lifeguarding, you can't afford that. A kid falls in a pool, you're not concentrating, that kid dies. So then you've got to live with that.
0: Yeah. That and is- you know whether
1: you've missed it on because you weren't paying attention or, as you said earlier with us, when we do have a death, we sit back and think, geez, you could have done that better, this better and that better. And, you know. But at the end of the day, if you blatantly know you're not doing the right thing, or not concentrating and someone dies, you're going to live with that for the rest of your life.
0: Yeah, and I think that gets me because I travel around a lot of country pools, and then we are getting younger kids. I mean, you know, they're doing it at 16 as juniors. They're they've got an 18 year old with them, but they are young kids, and you know, they're chatting to their friends, and we're trying to get more of them to actually, you know, fill the lifeguard roles because it's hard to get lifeguards in country areas. Mm-hmm. But it becomes the the opposite because they're not watching they're just doing it because they get the money and they're not, they haven't got the passion.
1: That's right. There's no passion there to do it. So we do a lot of stuff, scenario work as well. And we do that with the pools and I can turn up what I did with the, the other council. I turned up one day after we did all the sessions and they were just doing their normal job. I sort of snuck in and came in and then I had a kid with me, which could swim. But what we did, we got into some, just go into that area and just start going under and up, under and under, bobbing up and under. So without them even knowing, and I want to see with what I said and the procedures and patrolling strategies we were putting in place, we put the tower in to see how these guys would respond. And the only way to test it is them not knowing we're going to be there. Yeah. Now that happened and they did everything. They were straight on to it, got the kid out, blah, blah, blah. And then realized that that was a, <clears throat> that we, we were there doing that. But the outcome was to explain to them what you've been taught and what I've been saying for the last month. You guys now have just naturally done that. Yeah. And then, so that, because that could have been a kid that couldn't swim. Mm. Now, if they had have done that, if I turned up to another aquatic center and did the same thing the, and time, how long the kids going up and down, under and under and under, there'd be a, somewhere where no one even responds. Yep. And then you know you've got a problem. Yeah. So it's things like that I mean it's not trying to catch people out it's it's out of the it's just trying to get people out of their comfort zone with work and I mean some people probably think it's 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 too hardcore or whatever but that's the way if we didn't do that at Bondi we'd have multiple drownings weekly
2: mm.
1: so there's you know and there's no different the fire brigade any emergency service you need to be a bit tougher than than a normal a normal job yep. It was lost. You know, as I said, you imagine a two, three-year-old falls into a pool in an aquatic centre and drowns and you've mucked around on your phone or you're doing whatever you're doing. Yep. You've got to face that parent. Yeah. You know, and, and, I mean, it's pretty tough.
0: And a lot of the time when that stuff does happen, you know, like where we are, it's a country area, everyone knows everyone you know and people may not be willing to complain about a lifeguard because they are you know their friend's child or something but how are they going to feel when they have to see that parent of that drowned child around town you know every day or whenever they're in town like it's going to affect them for the rest of their life
1: yeah 100 percent.
0: yeah that's amazing and well, thank you so much. That's the last of my questions. And it has been over and above what I expected and was hoping for with this. I've learnt so much from you. Thank you so much for taking the time.
1: No, all good. Thanks for having me.